Church, last week I began a series on shepherding and the importance of being cared for and being part of a local church. And in our statements last week, I said that shepherding God's people is the sober-minded responsibility that's also joy-filled of nourishing and tending to the people of God under the Lordship of Christ. So it's sober-minded, and, and we are to nourish one another with the Word and watch over each other's lives as we walk together. And one of the main emphases of shepherding people is to show us that we are to love the Lord our God. Jesus says the first commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And so I said that love is the whole person movement in the life of a believer, which leads to adoration, requisite emotions, chiefly joy, but also repentance and sorrow over sin, but requisite emotions, thanksgiving and obedience, all based upon biblical truth. So shepherding. And so my thesis this morning, as we think about the focus of shepherding, is that, is that our main message, all Bible study, ends in the wonder and the glory of Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as we walk with each other and shepherd one another and care for one another, we must be people who understand and glory in the gospel of redeeming grace. That in the fullness of time, the eternal covenant of redemption that was planned before the worlds began between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit was brought to fruition when Jesus was supernaturally birthed and lived a sinless life and died on the cross for our sins and rose victorious over death and ascended to the right hand of God the Father and poured the Holy Spirit out upon the church. And that's the focal point of, of what we are about. And, and so the glory of the gospel of grace. And I'm going to go to a very familiar passage of Scripture this morning. It's in Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, it says that Christ was speaking. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees and the scribes or the teachers of the law grumbled saying this man receives sinners and eats with them it's very interesting there are two groups of people mentioned here that were listening to jesus one with their arms folded in disbelief that he's eating with notorious sinners but they're still listening and the other group were hanging on every word and there are the tax collectors and the sinners prostitutes notoriously wicked people. Tax collectors. What's interesting, when you study tax collectors in the Bible, and uh, we in America have no paradigm in which to fit the first century concept of tax collector. A tax collector in the first century was a minion of the occupational forces. They were there collecting money for the Romans. And they would not only collect money for the Romans, but they would take some of the money they were collecting and line their pockets. They were thieves. In fact, the Bible says he was a tax collector, therefore he was wealthy in one place. 
So it's just assumed that if you're a tax collector, you're wealthy because you're skimming and you're winking and you're nodding and you're in cahoots with the occupational forces. In World War II, there was a man named Vidcom Quisling. And Vidcom Quisling was in the Dutch, or excuse me, the Norwegian inner circle, and he worked with the Nazis to overthrow the existing government, and he became the de facto leader of Norway in World War II. Quisling was his last name. He was executed by firing squad after the war by the Norwegian people in May of 1945. But the term Quisling came to mean a turncoat or a traitor. In fact, a year after that, Winston Churchill stood in the House of Commons and said, we have seen a group of Quislings who have turned against their people and turned against their government, and they have been in league with evil. And so if you study history books today, they'll use the term, well, he's become a Quisling. It's become a, 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 a real word, not just a, in, in quotes. It means they turned. Tax collectors were Quislings. They betrayed. They lied. So, so th th they were on the outs. Bad outs. So tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. And then the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, th the Pharisee movement was only 60 years old. It was a response to lax living. And the Pharisees had come along and said, we're the party of purity. We're going to have all these laws of do's and don'ts, and we're going to show by our meticulous observance of all of our rules that we are serious about being people who want to honor the God who is. And they become very self-righteous, and time after time, Jesus takes the Pharisees to task. But two groups, very disparate groups. And so one group I'm going to suggest today represents younger brothers in this parable, the older group represents elder brothers. I commend to you a book entitled The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. It does a wonderful exposition of this passage. But hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 15. I'm going to start in verse 11. He said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Just stop there. Now, when Jesus told this story and he said this, I'm sure there were gasps of disbelief from the Jewish audience. Because for a younger son or a son to say to his father, Father, I want my inheritance is like saying, Father, I wish you were dead. And that was unthinkable in a Jewish culture. A culture that honored the elderly. So they just, you're kidding me. Wow. Can you believe this? Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, or when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise, and I'll go to the father, my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy 
to be called your son. Treat me as you treat one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, bring quickly the best robe and Put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near the house he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked them what these things meant and he said to him your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound but the older brother was angry and refused to go in his father came out to him and entreated him or pled with him but he answered his father look these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, but is found. So, incredible story. The younger son says, Father, all my inheritance. And the father divides up the inheritance and gives it to him. And so he gathered it all together, and he leaves, and he probably left on a camel with a servant carrying part of his inheritance probably a young, strong, muscular guy, maybe a little bit overweight because he's a son of prosperity. And he goes to a distant country, and Jesus says there he lived recklessly and squandered all of his inheritance. And the elder brother says he squandered it on prostitutes. And he went from bad to worse, and not only was he poverty-stricken, but a famine hit the land, and he had to hire himself as a day laborer, and the day laborer job involved something that was unthinkable to Jewish people. That's taking care of pigs, unclean animals. And he's standing there in his stench, matted hair, threadbare clothing, no shoes. And he longed to eat the refuse the pigs were eating. And the Bible says, Jesus says, he came to his senses he came to his senses about his condition and the love of his father. And he said, I'll go back. I'll say to my father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I just want to be a hired servant. And he practices the speech and he starts toward home. And he's stumbling because he's malnourished. He has nothing but a threadbare cloak on. He has no shoes. He's emaciated. And in one of the most beautiful statements in all Scripture, Jesus says, 
while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and had compassion on him and ran to him, which was not normal in those days. Older men didn't run. And he embraced him and he kissed him. And this son, who was disheveled and smelt of pigs, refuse, who had matted hair and threadbare clothing and sores on his feet, started to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven against you. And he just stops and he says to his servants, he says, bring the best robe, bring the ring, bring shoes, killed the fattened calf. It is time to celebrate. It's a beautiful story. That's Act 1 and 2. Act 3 is the elder brother. The elder brother is out in the field. The elder brother is, is, the, is always doing the right thing. The elder brother, he says, never disobeyed his father outwardly. The elder brother was always, you know, in charge of the family outings. He was man of the year, the junior chamber of commerce. He was just a really good guy. He did everything right. And the older brother said to a passing servant, what in the world is going on? There's a clamor over there singing and celebration and dancing. And what's going on? He said, hey, your younger brother came home. And your dad killed a fattened calf. And it is party time. And the older brother got, got angry. He wouldn't come inside. His father goes out and pleads with him, come inside. And he says, dad, I've, I've done everything for you, but you've never even given me a stinking goat to eat with my buddies. And this guy who comes back who's been with countless prostitutes, and you killed the fattened calf. Church, I tell you that when I was young and heard this story, before I came to know Christ, thankfully, I would say in my own heart, man, the elder brother's right. The elder brother's right. And it was years after I became a Christian when I started studying this, and I realized this is really the story about two sons, not just one. But the younger brother and the elder brother, and, and the younger and elder brother were very different. The younger brother, his, his modus operandi is, I'm going to discover life on my own terms. I'm going to go out and do it my way through self-discovery, personal fulfillment. The older brother said, I'm going to find acceptance and esteem through conformity to the existing communal standards where I live. I like pats on the back. The younger brother's operative emotions were shame and humility. And just, I just, when I was reading this, I thought, you know, there, there is a glorious freeing spontaneity that comes to your heart when you see the gospel of grace and you're able to admit that all your years of trying to win the favor of people and to convince people that you, that you really had all together, you don't have to do that anymore. You can say with great freedom, nobody's omnicompetent, we're all sinners, we all deserve judgment, and I, that would be my zip code and my address. And so it, it is a, it's a, the gospel just frees you up, it makes you happy. But shame and humility, it's a freeing thing. But the older brother's operative emotions were pride and anger. Pride because I, I'm, I'm a good guy. I'm a better guy than he is, and anger because, see, elder brothers say, if I do A, B, C, D, and E, then God will come through. And when you do these things and God doesn't come through, you get ticked off at God. And when you do A, B, and C, and your wife or your husband doesn't come through, you get mad at your wife or your husband. And you get mad at your kids, you get mad at your friends, you get mad at your contemporaries. Because you've done everything right, and they haven't. And I've got to tell you, I'm a recovering elder brother. 
It's true. The younger brother's key statement was, Jesus says, when he came to his senses regarding his condition and the love of his father, the elder brother's key statement is this, I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed you. I've never disobeyed your orders. I deserve this. And so if we're going to be the church God's called us to be, we've got to continually understand the gospel. So I'm just going to go through this and give you eight principles. Principle number one is to understand the gospel means that we continuously come to our senses regarding ourselves and the love of Abba Father. When I was dead in my transgressions and my sins, God made me alive in Jesus. There was a time when I was in seminary, when I was going through a difficult time, I was just dealing with some issues, and I kept singing time after time. I'd ride my bike and sing an old hymn called Victory in Jesus. And the refrain is, he loved me ere I knew him, and all my love has due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood, the cross of Christ. But I kept, he loved me before I even knew him. Isn't that something? Before time, but God, God loved me before I even said his name. I thought, I thought about him before I was born. Number two, elder brothers operate on the following law. I obey, therefore I am accepted by God, and he ought to bless me. If I do A, B, and C, God will do his part. Therefore, elder brothers can serve with joyous compliance to the rules, which leads to a sense of personal superiority. If everybody was just like me, what a wonderful world this would be. Church, every religion in the world is an elder brother religion. Every one of them. Every one of them. And the offshoots of the Christian faith, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, all of, them, all of them operate in this principle. If I do this, then God will love me, and he will be duty-bound to do this for me. If, you're in, if you ever study Islam, Islam says, if I do this, and I do this, and I do that, and I fast at Ramadan, and I give alms to the poor, and I live by the creed, there's no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet, and I make the holy trip to Mecca, and I pray five times a day, and I do, and I do, and I do, then maybe somehow, somewhere in the great balance scale in the heavens that my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds, and I'll get in. That's the ultimate elder brother mentality. Every world religion says, I do A, B, and C, and God has to do his part. The gospel of grace says no. It's all the work of Jesus. Fifthly, elder brothers, for them, Jesus may be a helper or an example or a role model, but never, never a, a savior. What elder brothers don't realize is that there is no sin you can ever commit that will ever keep you from the Father's embrace. And conversely, there's nothing you can ever do that will earn the Father's embrace. It's the cross. I just finished reading a book called Midnight Furies. It's about the partition of India in 1947 when the subcontinent was taken and part of it was made Muslim Pakistan and the other was Hindu India. 
and no one foresaw the incredible ethnic cleansing that would be poured out upon that people. Somewhere between 500,000 and 2 million people were butchered to death. We have no idea how many people. Trainloads of Muslims coming into India would be stopped and butchered, and the train would go in, and blood would flow from the trains that pulled in the station, and vice versa. And as I read this book, I, I just, about the horrible nature of all this, there, there, there was a shining light called Gandhi, great leader, the father of India. And Gandhi was trained in England as an attorney, went to South Africa and practiced and came to India and, and really became the father of the Indian independence movement. And Gandhi would go to places where there was incredible unrest, where Hindus and Sikhs were murdering Muslims or vice versa. And he would go there and say, kill me, kill me. And he would go on long fast until the leaders of these groups would come together and say, we will no longer butcher each other. Did it time after time. And two years after partition, he was gunned down by an assassin. But I just left the thought, I thought Gandhi was an incredible man. Incredible. And I always think about Gandhi. He talked about his religious heritage and what he believed. And he said several times, he says, the greatest statement I've ever read in any religious literature is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. The greatest statement I've ever read. It says Jesus was incredibly precise. And, and he was, Gandhi believed in nonviolence, and Gandhi influenced Martin Luther King. For that, I'm very thankful. But Gandhi went on, he said, but I do not receive Jesus as God. I receive him as an enlightened teacher. So as great as Gandhi was, Jesus was not Savior. He was an enlightened teacher. Elder brothers looked to Jesus as role models, teachers, helpers, but not a Savior from sin. Because quite frankly, they don't see their sin. And here's the point. I thought about this this week. I just thought about this and thought about this. Why don't you hear this? Younger brothers can encounter Jesus as Savior and Lord, come to their senses. Like I did when I was 19 years of age, I saw the beauty of the cross, fresh from that, the citadel. You, you, you come to faith, you see the beauty of the forgiveness of sins through the work of Jesus only, and you're His. And as the years go by, if the gospel is not central, if you don't preach the gospel to yourself, you can become, in your conformity, an elder brother. Younger brothers can become elder brothers. Unless we see the beauty of the gospel continuously. A couple of quotes. One is by this Tim Keller from this wonderful book. He says, the gospel is therefore not just the ABCs of the Christian life, but it is the A to the Z of the Christian life. Our problems arise largely because we don't continually return to the gospel to work in it and to live it out in our daily lives. Martin Luther, writing several centuries before, regarding the book of Galatians, says, if, if I look only at myself and I cast Christ aside, returning to myself and considering only what I am and what I ought to be and what I am bound to do, I lose sight of Christ 
who is my righteousness and my life. And once he is lost, there's no help left, but only despair and destruction. So so younger brothers who taste the goodness of Christ, if they don't keep the gospel central, can become get their lives straightened up by the Holy Spirit and start thinking they're better than they are and they can become elder brothers. I've seen it happen. And so I, I, thought, about, I thought about this uh, in light to everybody's top three or four favorite hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Unless you know the gospel continuously, instead of amazing grace, it becomes nice grace. How nice the music that saved an erring person like me. I once was somewhat discombobulated, but now I'm okay. I once needed an ophthalmological appointment, but now I'm, I'm okay. It becomes grace. It's a note that saves a worthy, wonderful person like me. I really wasn't lost. My GPS just wasn't working. I had to tinker with it, and now everything's fine. I didn't really need an eye doctor. I am fine. Listen, church, is it still amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me? I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. See, it happens. It happened in the book of Revelation. There are two churches that are mentioned. You know them well. The church at Ephesus, it says this. The Lord says to them, I I have this against you, even though you're patient and you endure and you bear persecution for my name's sake. You've not grown weary, but I've got this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. You left your first love. And much more damning is the statement to the church at Laodicea where the Lord writes, I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that in reality you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. It happens. I still sing Amazing Grace. So we can only change permanently as we take the gospel more deeply into our lives and our understanding. As we gaze upon the greatness of Christ, we are changed. Therefore, I must preach the gospel to myself every day. I must glory in the gospel of grace. I must say with great fervor, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for me so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. I've got to glory in all that Christ is for me. And when I understand that and I live that, you know what? I'm invited to the party. I love the fact they had a party in Luke 15. I love the fact that in John chapter 2, the first The first miracle that's mentioned in the book of John is turning water into wine. Let me just read part of that to you. So Jesus is at a wedding feast in Cana, and it says this. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. So 20 to 30, 120 to 180 gallons of water. That's a lot of water. 
And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some and take it to the master of the feast. The guy in charge, the wedding director, the wine taster, the, the guy who knew weddings. Now, and, and this is what happened. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. What is going on? Now, I don't understand wine tasting. I, I, just as an aside, I grew up in Yadkin County, North Carolina, and we were all tobacco farmers. But then when tobacco went out as a product, now everybody's got wineries in Yadkin County. So, but I, I didn't grow up in that culture. I, some people say, well, you know, you drink this wine with steak because it breathes. You drink this wine with lobster. You drink this wine with Cheetos. I mean, I don't, I don't, I, I don't, I don't get it. But let me tell you something. The wine steward, the master of the feast, got it. And when he tasted this wine, the best wine he's ever had in his life, he pulls the bridegroom aside and says, Listen, what's going on? You serve the good wine first, which I did, and then you bring out the stuff that's not that good. He says, but this is great. He said, do you know what we've got? We don't, we, we, we. Read between the lines. You know what we've got going on here? 180 gallons of the best wine ever. We bottle this. We sell it. You have a down payment for the best house on the, in Cana of Galilee. What a gift. And they're going crazy and running around. And Jesus is sitting there smiling. And it's a statement saying, welcome to the party. Welcome to the party. Isaac Watts wrote a hymn that said, the hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets before we get to heaven. Welcome to the party. The party of the forgiveness of sin. The party of understanding the Abba love of the Father. The party of coming to your senses and seeing the glorious goodness of God in His triune splendor. And God says, welcome. He says, come. So that's what we should be about. Communicating to moral outsiders, profligate, prostitute, visiting men, cutthroat charlatans who still showing them, behold the goodness of the living Christ. That's what we communicate to people who are uptight and their rules and their regulations, who think that by doing A, B, and C, they're going to get to heaven, behold the glory of the Christ. We say to one group, there's nothing you can ever do that would disqualify you from the love of the Father in Jesus. And we say to the other group, there's nothing you can ever do to earn the love of the Father in Jesus. It's all the cross. It's all the cross. Do you see that? Do we see that as a church? That's what we're about. Now, very quickly, let me make a personal statement. We've had um, the summer is over, and that's hard. You know, it's hard because when the summer is over, it means you go back to school. I'm not in any way saying school is wonderful. It's a gift from God. Education is a gift from God, but it's still very difficult to go back to school after playing all summer. I don't care who you are or what age you are. 
And, and somebody said in the hall after the first service, you know, going to school is a good thing. I said, yeah, you can say that because we're out. We don't have to take tests. But let's be honest, it's tough. But the, but the, the good news about summer being over is that Thursday night is coming. Football's here. So we talked about a building program. Summer kicked off. We, I told you that by October the 1st, we need to have commitments leaning towards January the 1st because we are building, we're expanding our building program. Uh, we're going to build a worship center and we, we want to build a welcome center, but to build the welcome center that will join these buildings will cost $1.3 million. We've asked you to pledge to that, to give to that over and above your tithe, to honor the Lord with that. And uh, we, we hope to be in the new worship center uh, by Easter 2016. The good thing about this program is, is, is that this room will be a permanent worship facility for our contemporary worshipers who have been so kind and gracious to worship in a gym, and this is going to be great for them. Uh, we have a, a sanctuary, we have office space, we have classrooms for the growth of our school, so forth. So, and it's, it's going to help us to fulfill our mission statement, which is equipping people to pursue Christ's passion and impact the culture. Now, two things. I mean, challenged by a couple of men in our church. One is, I've said, we want 100% participation, and we do. But one man said, no, if everybody gets $10, that's not going to get us very far. And I said, yeah, you're right. So we want 100% participation at the level where you can sacrificially give. The second issue was, was this, that some people see the building as nice but not necessary. I'm telling you, it's necessary. Additional worship facilities, classrooms, meeting areas, to sharpen people and send them out in, in a day when the culture seems to be slipping from every mooring that we've had in the past. It's not a time for the church to be silent. It's a time for us to speak with dignity and love and brokenness, but to speak. So we want to equip people, send them out. Train people, send them out. Worship, go out, impact the world. So more about that in, in, in the coming days, but we want everyone involved. And some people here have been enormously gifted financially, and you can make an incredible commitment to this. And I'm just going to be challenging to do that in the next few weeks. But thank you for your faithfulness and your kindness as a church. It is a great joy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today, and thank you for the gospel of grace. Thank you that where there were moral outsiders who have lived a life that causes us shame, there's hope because of the cross. Thank you that if we're moral insiders, who have lived uh, with our list of do's and don'ts trying to earn your favor, that there's hope as we realize there's nothing we can do. It's the cross. So really the gospel message goes across all barriers, all ethnicities, all socioeconomics, all worldviews to say it's only the cross. So because of that, we praise you. And we ask, Lord, that you who work in our hearts and make us a people who speak the gospel to other people, whether tax collectors or Pharisees, whether they're sinners or teachers of the law, we need Jesus. And God, let us not get over the absolute mind-boggling thrill of singing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.